to direct your attention to that back table that has the, these, the, these handouts right here. Actually, Miss Veronica prepared them. They actually look pretty nice. And uh, I do encourage you to pick one up. We will be going through these throughout the Lenten mission. Especially the first two nights we're going to be, we're going to be drawing from these handouts in particular. So if you have not picked one up, you can take this opportunity to do so. So I assume what has drawn many of you all here are is wondering what the heck is the discernment of spirits? You know, this is it's not liquor here. I mean, this is often what we what we tend to associate the idea of spirits with. But but it's because it's not a commonly talked about topic, discernment of spirits. If anything, I mean, I've, I've noticed over the years since, since the Second Vatican Council, at least from what I hear, we've tended to move away from spirits. And actually there's kind of like a, a stigma about spiritualizing things and getting, making things too about demons and angels, but rather grounded more in psychology. And I don't want to discount psychology at all. But for this conference, I want to point out how does the spiritual life perhaps correlate with our psychological reality, not nixing the not not trying to rule off the advances made in the area of psychology, acknowledging them, but also acknowledging perhaps there's more at play. Perhaps there is a spiritual life, and perhaps that spiritual life is not just mysteriously behind some wall that's that's veiled by matter, but it perhaps actually interacts with us in reality. And so that's what this conference is going to be all about these next three days, is seeing how the spiritual life interacts with reality. I want to answer three questions throughout these next three days. The first question that I want to answer is, how do I discern a big decision? A big life decision. This is something that I think a lot of us struggle with. How do I discern these big, major decisions that might be on our hearts, on our minds, that kind of cripple us, if you will. So that's going to be the first thing. We're going to really address that question on the last day. I'm going to save the best for last. So if you guys, this is just kind of the carrot that, that's going to keep you coming. So that's going to be, that's going to be the last thing we're going, to, we're going to talk about. The second thing that we're going to talk about is what do you do in a spirit or in a state of desolation? I can't tell you how many people I've seen over the years leave the church because they didn't know what to do in a state of desolation. They receive this dryness. They receive this heaviness. And what happens? They just kind of assume that, mm, maybe this Catholic thing isn't for them. Maybe this whole spirituality thing isn't really what they're meant for. Maybe they're just, they just need to do other things like exercise or do yoga or just party more or whatever. I mean just kind of draw false conclusions based off of the fact that they themselves are dry. I remember one time I was, I was, I was hanging out with a, with a guy that I was discerning with. We discerned the priesthood together. In fact, ironically, we were discerning the Jesuits. And he, which is all, they're all about discernment of spirits. They, they kind of coined this term. And I remember asking me, like years later he became an atheist. And I remember asking him, well, what happened? He said it wasn't... It wasn't immediate. It was gradual. It was gradual. And I can't tell you how often that happens. Most of us don't fall away from the faith because of one incident. It's a gradual erosion that the devil loves to do to us. And it's not by accident. It's very much well designed. It's very orchestrated. And so what I want to go over and what I want to kind of show you guys is what we can do to combat that. To resist that evil. To reject that notion that, that we might be in desolation and that this desolation was to remain forever, which is generally the assumption that comes about whenever we experience this. But the most important part and the biggest question that I want to answer kind of goes back to the homily that I preached on Sunday. How do I put myself in a place where I can encounter Christ? How do I put myself, like Zacchaeus, in a place where I can be found? Where the Lord can gaze upon me and the Lord can move my heart. 
We've all been through this time and time again. We go on a retreat, we hear a great homily, we have a powerful confession, we go to Mass after, after, after a long week, and we experience something very, very powerful. And then it kind of withers away. We don't really experience anymore. It's not, it doesn't really touch our hearts. It kind of vanishes. What the discernment of spirits is all about is teaching us how to stay in that place. How not to allow those graces to slip on by. It's so that we don't forget the presence, the real presence of Christ in our life. And so these graces that we, that we experience are actually reaped upon. And then we can actually reap the fruits that, that the Lord is looking to give us. And that's the sermon of spirits. is all about putting ourselves in a place where you and I can encounter Christ. So here's the question. Before we even approach these three questions, what are discernment of spirits? What exactly are we about to get ourselves into? And so I want to first begin by looking at the, the, briefly the history of discernment of spirits. Discernment of spirits goes back all the way to the scriptures. We see it in Genesis, we see it in Corinthians, we see it in the letter of James, discussing the, especially in the Corinthians, discussing the spirits, that is the charisma of the people of God to see how our gifts, how our spirit, how the Holy Spirit is working in us individually to benefit others. That's just the letter of James. But the discernment of spirits goes a little bit deeper in, 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 into history, and in, excuse me, goes a little bit further in, advancing into history, namely especially in the, the, the work The Shepherd of Hamas, but in a work that I recommend everybody to read, St. Anthony of the Desert. St. Anthony of the Desert is an incredibly unique work. It's a third century work, which means that it was written in the 200s about a biography of St. Anthony of the Desert written by St. Athanasius. It's very interesting. A biography of a saint written by a saint. St. Athanasius, known as the the doctor of orthodoxy, Known as the one who ultimately stood up against the Arian, her- 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 yeah, excuse me, the Arian heresy and crushed them. St. Athanasius, incredible man. Now, what's interesting about St. Athanasius describing St. Anthony's of the desert's experience is that St. Anthony, in his seclusion, away from the rest of society, would experience these wild and crazy visions. We're talking, he would go out and he would, he would see wildebeest charging at him. He would see giraffes kind of coming by with, with, with giant hands walking out of their necks and trying to intimidate him. And, of course, he would see a bunch of scantily clad ladies. If this happens to you, you probably need to call a psychiatrist. I'm just saying. This probably is not going to be your idea of discernment of spirits. But it was for St. Anthony of the Desert. St. Anthony of the Desert was a very unique figure in history. And yet he's the one who kind of began monasticism. That is, monks living in the desert as we know it. Very, very fascinating read. It might not necessarily apply to you directly, but his wisdom is golden. It's a very short read as well. What's interesting about St. Anthony of the Desert is that in his wisdom, he said that each vision you can tell based off of what it leaves you with. If you have a vision of, say, a wild beast or whatever, which is what he was apparently experiencing, and it leaves you with terror and fear and a lack of peace, then that's not the Lord. But if it is a vision that leaves you with peace, well, that is the Lord. That's that's a very, very basic piece of discernment of spirits. And that's written, that's from the, excuse me, it's it's from the 4th century, not not the 3rd century. I got that wrong. So that's, the, that's, that's one of the earliest kind of forms of discernment of spirits. And you see discernment of spirits in other works, especially as spiritual direction became a thing. So like St. Bernard, or Saint, excuse me, St. Bernard, not St. Bernard. We're not in Brobridge here. The real one is St. Bernard. St. Francis de Sales and St. Ignatius of Loyola. St. Ignatius of Loyola took discernment of spirits and developed it. In such a way that we, anytime, generally speaking, you ever hear the term discernment of spirits, generally referencing St. Ignatius of Loyola. And in my opinion, and most other experts, especially Father Timothy Gallagher's opinion, St. Ignatius of Loyola's story best describes the utilization of 
the, this principle of discernment. So let me give you a little background about St. Ignatius of Loyola. St. Ignatius was a Basque. Now those who are unfamiliar with, <clears throat> with, with the Iberian Peninsula, the Basque country is not part of Spain. If you say that, they will get very, very mad. But in all practical purposes, it is part of Spain. They're not, a, they're not their own country. But throughout history, they, they held on to their own kind of little identity that they were a unique fit group of people in history. Now, St. Ignatius was born in 1491, died in 1556, so kind of around the Protestant Reformation. So he, he was, he's a very, and he was the founder of what's known as the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. But what's interesting was he didn't exactly, he wasn't like a St. Therese or maybe even like arguably a St. Anthony of the Desert or, or many of the other great saints in history, born a cradle Catholic and, and very, like, very holy. He was born, maybe raised Catholic, but not exactly your model of, of holiness. St. Ignatius was a middle child. And he grew up in, a, as in lower nobility. So he wasn't really that high up in the food chain. And not only that, the poor guy was five foot two, which means he suffered from that horrible syndrome that so many five foot two men suffer from. Not you guys, of course. That's the Napoleon complex. He had small man syndrome. And so his whole kind of life was centered around proving his worth. Proving how tough he was. Just kind of being the baddest dude on the block. In fact, there's, there's many stories about him almost killing people in straight anger. Very, very interesting figure. True military man. And basically, all that more or less came to a halt when one day he was defending a castle against probably some other Spanish crew. And they came up upon him with cannons. And he didn't surrender. And he kept fighting and kept on yelling and screaming until a cannonball came and hit his right femur. And of course, you know, you can't really do much whenever your femur is broken. And so he, he just drops down to the ground. And so basically they lose the battle, but his enemy spared his life because they admired his toughness so much. And what ended up happening was he was put inside his family's castle to kind of recover from the wound. And what's interesting, just a side note, same nature was an incredibly tough, tough man. Like I said, Napoleon complex. And he, he, whenever the, the surgeons went in to fix the wound, they found that it healed with a, a giant knot kind of coming out of his knee. And that was back in the day whenever guys wore tights. That was whenever that was cool. Don't wear tights these, day, guys, these days, guys. But he did. And the issue with that is it's unsightly to have a giant knob coming out of your tights. And so what he did was he went to the surgeon and he demanded that they cut this giant bone out of his, out of his, basically his leg, and the only way, the only kind of method, the only anesthesia he used was he just closed his fist and clenched it really, really hard. Pretty, I mean, this guy, he was a tough guy. Anyway, what this led to was he was bedridden for about a year, and this was back in the day whenever books were not that common, and so in his tower, there were only two works one was the life of Christ. The second one was the lives of the saints. So all he really had were these two spiritual works. And he was not a religious guy. He just, that was just not his thing. But because he was bored out of his mind, he decided he would read these books. And that's where this whole principle all began. Allow me to read you a little bit of what he was experiencing. As he read them, the books... Over many times, he became rather fond of what he found written there. Putting his reading aside, he sometimes stopped to think about the things he had read and at other times about the things of the world, of the world that he used to think about before. Of the many things that presented themselves to him, one took such a hold on his heart that he was absorbed in thinking about it for two or three or four hours without realizing it. He imagined that he would do what he would do, excuse me, he imagined what he would do in the service of a certain lady. The means he would take so he could go to the country where she lived, 
the verses, the words he would say to her, the deeds of arms he would do in her service. He became so conceited with this that he did not consider how impossible it would be because the lady was not of the lower nobility, nor a countess, nor a duchess, but her station was higher than any of these. Basically, he was going after a girl that was way out of his league, and he was loving every minute of it. He would sit there and daydream. But what's interesting about that was he would think about these thoughts, and then after a few hours, he'd get bored and get kind of tired of thinking about this. And then his mind would shift, and he'd think about something else, and this is what he would think about. Nevertheless, our Lord assisted him, causing other thoughts that arose from the things he read to follow these. While leaving the life of our Lord and of the saints, he stopped to think, reasoning within himself, what if I should do what St. Francis did, what St. Dominic did? So he pondered over many things that he found to be good, always proposing to himself what was difficult and serious. And as he proposed them, they seemed to him easy to accomplish. But his every thought was to say to himself, St. Dominic did this, therefore I have to do it. St. Francis did this, therefore I have to do it. These thoughts also lasted a good while. But when others' matters intervened, the worldly thoughts mentioned above returned. And he also spent much time on them. And so this was his life, going back and forth from worldly thoughts to godly thoughts. Worldly thoughts to godly thoughts. And this was the commentary that he had on them. There was this difference. When he was thinking about the things of the world, he took much delight in them. But afterwards, when he was tired and put them aside, he found that he was dry and discontented. But afterwards, when he was tired and put them aside, he, was, he found that he was dry and discontented. But when he thought of going to Jerusalem, barefoot, eating nothing but herbs, and undergoing all the rigors that he saw the saints had endured, not only was he consoled when he had these thoughts, but even after putting them aside, he remained content and happy. Dry and discontented worldly thoughts. Content and happy spiritual thoughts. He did not notice this, however, nor did he stop to ponder the difference until one time, and this is key, his eyes were opened a little. His eyes were opened a little, and he began to marvel at the difference and reflect upon it. And realizing from experience that some thoughts left him sad and others happy, little by little he came to recognize the difference between spirits, the spirits that agitated him, one from the demon, the other from God. One from the demon, the other from God. Now I think this is a story we can all relate to. Visions of wildebeest trampling upon us in giraffes with arms is not something most people can relate to. But the idea of having certain ambitions arising different feelings within our hearts, I think this is something we've all experienced to some degree or another. And that is essentially what discernment of spirits is. Where is the demon and where is the Lord? Notice he he went months without even realizing there was a difference without even realizing the sensation that his heart had, thinking about these different things. And yet, and yet, when his eyes were opened a little bit, he realized that there was a spiritual reality to all these things that made all the difference. Now, before we really dive in to these 14 rules of discernment, what I want to look at or nine principles of discernment, kind of ways we can look deeper into and basically explain and basically understand these 14 rules. So we have St. Ignatius, and he's recognizing these different principles. So let me, I, I just realized, let me, let me explain how the, the birth of the rules came about. St. Ignatius get, eventually recovers. He gets out of the, 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 the tower. And once he gets out of the tower, he, he proceeds to go to Jerusalem. He proceeds to eat nothing but herbs, and he ruins his stomach. But eventually he starts to realize that maybe there needs some moderation. And more or less, he starts to found the Society of Jesus. 
And that's whenever he writes the, 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 the spiritual exercises. And those spiritual exercises within the first kind of week of them has these 14 rules of discernment of spirits, which applies to his experience that he had up in the tower. But before we can ever understand those 14 rules, it's best to understand these principles, kind of just the basic underlying under foundation of how we are to approach these rules. Because there's something, they're, they're very hard to understand if we just read them, and they're even hard to apply. So the first rule is this. There is no neutral ground in the spiritual life. It doesn't exist. Either you're going to heaven or you're going to hell. There's no, there's no in-between. Purgatory is just a way to heaven. That's, that's, if, you're in, you're, if you're in purgatory, congratulations, you made it. It's going to take us some suffering, but, but you did it. There's no neutral ground. But the thing is, in the world we live in, it's hard to see that. We know there's black. We know there's white. But because of this world, in, in what, the, what the spiritual offers say, because of matter, because of our bodies, because of the flesh, the black and the white tend to collide, and it becomes very, very murky and hard to see what is right, what is wrong, what is God, what is the demon. But we're talking about spiritual discernment. And spiritual discernment is a way to kind of sift through the grayness of life, sift through kind of the matter that's proposed to us so that we can look at the, the black and the white that actually affects it. So we can parse through what is, what is the, the black here, what is the white here, why is it gray? And so spiritual discernment essentially is all about seeing things in terms of light or darkness, black or white. There's not a lot of gray whenever it comes down to this is the demon and this is the Lord. It's very, very simple. We reject the demon, we accept the Lord. Done. So there's no neutral ground in the spiritual life. We're looking at one or the other. The next thing that's important is discernment is impossible if we don't have silence. If we don't have silence. We need silence if we're ever going to hear our thoughts. We need silence if we're ever going to truly understand how we feel after reading certain books, how we feel after seeing certain things. St. Ignatius, there's no coincidence that St. Ignatius discovered this after hours and hours and hours, months and months and months spit in silence reading. I don't think he would have discovered such a thing had he had been on the battlefield fighting left and right. I just don't see it happening. I see it as something that he, I see it as a war. I see it as something that he would be very, very, it would be very, very difficult for him to settle down and really accept what is given to him. Really, really accept and understand and discern how he's actually feeling. So it's impossible to do without silence. And here's why. God wants to be felt and heard. So he impresses himself upon our thoughts. Upon our thoughts. A lot of, there's a lot of thought that, or at least theory that discernment of spirits is all about feelings. It's not about feelings. It's about thoughts. It's about thoughts. There's a principle that I wanted to put on there, but I forgot. And it's this. There really should be 10 principles of discernment. And the principle is this. Generally speaking, this isn't all the time, but generally speaking, thoughts lead to feelings, which lead to actions. Thoughts lead to feelings, which lead to actions. All right, so, they, so thoughts are kind of the precursor to a lot of our feelings. Which means that the Lord and Satan is constantly working in our thoughts, not necessarily in our feelings. Feelings are kind of like the process, the processing of our thoughts, more often than not. So how does God want to be felt and heard? Namely, through our thoughts. Through our thoughts. Through influencing our thoughts, through, our, through consoling us in, in, in our thoughts, through guiding us in our thoughts. The fourth principle, if we're to really understand discernment, is this paradigm. Awareness, understanding, take action. You notice the actions are simple. Accept, reject. One or the other. Heaven, hell. God, demon. Right, wrong. This is black and white here, people. It is one or the other. Once we get down and once we figure out one or the other, it's pretty clear what we need to do. But the way, the, before we can ever take action, 
we need to have these things called awareness and understanding. Now, awareness is that kind of matter of what we see in Ignatius. Oh, being aware of your thoughts, being aware of your feelings, being aware of your desires. Thoughts, feelings, and desires. Just being, having that notion. But what's, even, what's, what's key to that is we might know how we're, think, how we're feeling. We might know what we're thinking. But that means nothing if we don't understand how they work. If we don't really stop and reflect on our thoughts and our feelings. We'll get more to that in a little bit. The next thing is types of awareness. There's psychological awareness, there's moral awareness, and there's spiritual awareness. Psychological awareness is simple. You know, the, the, these things like, we often talk about psychologically depression, anxiety, some, of, some people suffer from other mental issues. These, these types of bigger deals, ADHD, whatnot, this, these are all psychological problems. Discernment of spirits is not geared toward healing medically diagnosed depression. Discernment of spirits is not geared toward healing medically diagnosed anxiety. Can it? Absolutely. No question. But I'm not sitting here and I'm, and I'm not selling you an antidote to anxiety medication or antidepressants. That's not, that, is, that would be a false advertisement. Now, could it happen? Absolutely. Do I recommend somebody who might be experiencing depression or anxiety or anything like that to enact these principles? A hundred percent. But I cannot and will not promise a cure. This is meant to get you to heaven. It is not meant to, to cure psychological illnesses or diseases. That being said, that's something that's key to remember. Is, it, is, the, is what I'm experiencing, is the thought that I'm experiencing, is the feeling I'm experiencing, is the desire I'm experiencing psychological or is it something else? The other awareness is moral. Is it right? Is it wrong? This is not something you really, you don't have to discern, should I or should I not steal a car like that's not that's not discernible that's written in the ten commandments it's clear there's nothing gray about that it's evidently black and white there's no mystery it's not like like saint ignatius who do i go after a woman which objectively isn't bad or do i march to jerusalem barefoot and eat herbs that is grayer that's harder to figure out whereas in moral terms it's either one or the other it's either, it's either a break a Ten Commandment or not. It's either do the right thing or do the wrong thing. So that's another very important thing is you cannot use discernment of spirits to break the moral law. Discernment of spirits happens within the moral law. It happens within the code. So for instance, if you're discerning your prayer life and you're discerning how you feel and you're just like going with the, mo- going with the flow just like getting it all in and you wake up and you go Mary is the fourth person of the Trinity first Trinity you know three whatever so that doesn't make any sense for logically but it doesn't make any sense doctrinally so if you come up with anything doctrinally in error in your discernment guess what you're wrong not the church let's be very very clear about that the church, this is, we need, if, if all life was was just discerning spirits, we'd all basically be a bunch of hippies and we probably wouldn't even be in this Catholic church anymore. Thing is, life is so much more than that, but discernment of spirits are a key tool to our toolbox. We need the catechism, we need the dogma, we need the doctrine to kind of control our discernment of spirits. One of the things that, one of the, my favorite kind of preachers is a man by the name of Ron Yero Consolamesa. He's the preacher for the papal household. Now, what's interesting about Raniero Consolamesa is that he's an incredibly charismatic individual. Very, very, tongues, healings, all that stuff. You know, way, way praying with the hands up in the air, all that. Is there anything wrong with that? Not at all. Do I do that? Only whenever I'm preaching. Nothing wrong with that. All right? But what's interesting in what he said was you cannot have a church that's just based off of Pentecostal receiving, receiving, Pentecostal charisms, just receiving of the Spirit. You have to have a hierarchy of the church to keep that in check. Otherwise, you're going to get, you're going to go a little crazy. It's the same thing here with the Sermon of Spirits. You need a hierarchy, you need a, a structure, you need a catechism to ensure 
that what you're discerning lines up with the truth, that, to ensure that it's right. And so that's, the, that's the, 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 the type of awareness, moral. And then there's the deeper thing. That's the spiritual. This is the, this is the harder one to discern. This is the, do I do this? Do I do that? Is it this way or that way? And that is very much dependent upon awareness, understanding, and action. Spiritual, it's a lot deeper. The sixth principle, my favorite. Notice, 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 notice. You've got to notice your tail off if you're going to discern spirits. You cannot simply sleep through life and expect to be able to see where God is working, where the devil is working. Uh-uh. Ain't going to happen. Because what's going to, because you're going to wind up like St. Ignatius. Thinking about the going after this girl who's way out of his league for two, three, four, five, six hours at a time. Without even, even realizing it. That's the trick of the devil. The devil does not want us to notice. The devil does not want us to think. The devil does not want us to actually engage or process our feelings or anything like that. Why? Because that is a divine power that the devil does not want us to utilize. That is what separates us from the animals. I'll tell you this. I love, love, love to go hog hunting. I also love to go deer hunting. I love all these things. I'll tell you this. Right now, these animals are really, really sticking smart. That's why I haven't killed anything in two months. And I've tried, believe me. Man, it's not a wound. It just hurts a lot. All right? And so, but these things, you, would, you, would, you, you cannot tell me that these things don't have thoughts. They, you can't tell me that. They definitely have thoughts. They, oh, human, I'm out of here. All right? That's happened to me multiple times. I'm bitter about that, but I'm okay. I'm going to get over that. All right? So they smell and they think they see big wire trap. Smell like human, run away. That's why I haven't caught a hog in two months. I've been trying, I'm trying, look, but I haven't had much work. Point being is that they have thoughts. They think. And they tend to outsmart me. It's very annoying. But what they don't have is thoughts about their thoughts. They do not think about their thoughts. They don't think human. Hmm. I wonder if that's a redheaded human or a brunette human. I wonder if he's Catholic or Protestant. Hmm. I wonder if I'm even thinking correct things right now. I mean, it could be a coon. It could be like no hog sits there and debates in his own head, or or they don't like go together and like have little like piglet debates. Like you you know you're 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 small and you're big and you're this and that. They don't do that. All right. They don't have philosophical discussions. They don't have religion. That's something that just we have. But the devil doesn't want us to utilize that, which is why this this principle, this number six principle, is so stinking important. Notice. But don't just notice anything. Notice your thoughts. Notice your thoughts. Don't be an animal. Don't be a deer. Don't be a hog. Be a human. Never thought you'd hear that before. All right, so be a human. Live in your humanity and think about your thoughts. That's going to be very, very important for what we're about to do. Number seven, and this is also exceptionally, exceptionally important. Discernment is more about the who than it is about the what. Discernment is more about the who than it is about the what. And here's what I mean. Whenever you're thinking these thoughts, or whenever St. Ignatius is thinking these thoughts, what was going through his head, or at least whenever he realized that he needed to discern spirits, wasn't so much, is this a good thing for me? Or is this a bad thing? That's important. Don't get me wrong. That, that prudence requires you to think about, is this a good thing or a bad thing? But discernment of spirits is not, is this good or is this bad? It's, is this the Lord or is this a demon? Is it one, is it, it's about the who. Is this calling me? Another way to look at it is the Sermon of Spirits is not so much about achieving something. It's about growing in relationship with someone. Does this action, does this thought lead me closer to God? Or does it lead me further away from him? Does it lead me closer to him? Or does it take me further away from him? One or the other. Back and forth. 
It's more about the who. So that we're discerning the who. What is, what is it we're, we're talking about? Like, what is it, what is, who is working on us at this moment? Now, number eight and number nine, they go, they go hand in hand, but I want to just make it clear the connection. Non-spiritual consolation is often a springboard to spiritual consolation. Non-spiritual desolation is often a springboard to spiritual desolation. So here's what I mean whenever I say that. You might wake up or if you might, you might, you know, this happens to me sometimes whenever in spiritual direction or people come to me in spiritual direction. Lord, like, look, Father, my, my prayer is so dry. I'm not really seeing the Lord anywhere. Things are just not, not going too well for me. I just, I just, you know, I just don't get it. I feel like God's abandoned me. And so I, one of the ways to approach this question, or this statement, it was first off, thank you for sharing. The second is, what's been going on in your life? Like, what, what's actually been happening? Oh, well, you know, I failed a test. I haven't been sleeping. My girlfriend broke up with me. I got this. I got this. I got all these problems. Okay, maybe this isn't a problem with the Lord so much as it's a problem with your own situation. Essentially, what we're talking about is you have a lot of non-spiritual desolation. Failed a test, didn't get any sleep, lost a relationship. And that's affecting your relationship with the Lord. So usually these two go very, very hand in hand. This is the same thing for spiritual consolation. One of the things I'll constantly tell people is, look... You've got to feel like a winner. You've got to feel like a winner. And what I mean whenever I say that is you've got to get some wins in your life. Which means if you want to feel consoled, it's not about eating ice cream bars and watching Netflix. It's going to be about making your bed. It's going to be about doing your homework. It's about, going to be about doing a good job. Doing these things that are essentially consoling to us. Because for some reason we're just made to feel whole and complete whenever, whenever we actually do these things well, whenever we get those non-spiritual consolations, our relationship with God will be that much easier. It'll be that much more complete. It'll be that much, much more consoling. This is a, this is a piece of advice that Father Timothy Gallagher gives that I think is very, very brilliant. And what it does is it takes the discernment of spirits and it helps us to understand, it gives us a little bit more ways to address the desolation we might be experiencing to address kind of the sadness that you and I might be might be undergoing, you know. And so look at that. Before you before if you're ever in a state where you're just like, man, I'm just not I just don't have it today. I just don't want to do this today. Look at your life. Do a little reflection. Have you been taking some losses? Have you been losing here? Have you been losing there? If so, how can we turn those losses in, and make them into W's? How can, you make, how can we make those things into wins? How can you start feeling consoled? How can you start feeling like a winner? And that's going to be key to taking those next few steps to overcoming the desolation that you might be experiencing. So these are the nine principles of discernment. I'm going to do something that often we don't, we don't always do in Catholic churches, but I think it's going to be important, for, at least for right now. Before we move into the 14 rules of discernment, do we have any questions so far about the life of St. Ignatius, about the nine principles of discernment, about anything like that, before we start really plowing into the good stuff? All right. Oh, man, I am just one heck of a teacher. All right, here we go. The 14 rules of discernment. Now, like I said, what's the, I think it's the second principle. The second principle, discernment is impossible without silence. Now, what you'll notice here, at least I, I, I took it out, but this is, this is part of what, what, what St. Ignatius calls the spiritual exercises. For those who are unfamiliar, the spiritual exercises are a guidebook to the 30-day silent retreat that every Jesuit has to undergo at least twice in his lifetime. A 30-day silent retreat. And basically, the silent retreat begins with, in, in, it consists of what we call four different weeks. The first week is contemplation about heaven and hell, about the last things, and it's an acknowledgement about how much you need the Lord. The second week is all about a walk with Christ, 
and experiencing his love, experiencing just just exactly how how he worked and how he walked on this earth. So we're taught we're praying with Christ's miracles, we're praying with Christ's baptism, we're praying with, praying with Christ in infancy as as a, as a little baby. You you pray with Christ throughout this entire process, and that that that's about the third week. This, excuse me, that's the second week. It's the life of Christ. The third week is the passion of Christ. That's Holy Week. So that's Palm Sunday. That's Holy Thursday. That's Good Friday. And that's Holy Saturday. It's a, it's a very, very intense time where you're immersed and you pray constantly with the life of Christ. And the fourth week is the resurrection. And that's whenever the, the, the retreat ends and you go off and you live life focused on the resurrection and how your own life has been resurrected. This retreat is meant to to start a conversion deep within within the soul and it is it's been a it's a very beautiful experience. I myself did one and it's really to this day it's it's hard to it's it's something I can't figure out. I just I just don't get it. Um I spent like I don't know if you guys know me. I like to talk. Big fan, huge fan of using using this. All right, and so big big fan of talking. But those thirty days of silence, where we only had I think two days of being allowed to talk, were some of the best thirty days of my life. I mean, just absolutely incredible, just moving, deep, profound experience with the Lord. I cannot quite explain it. To me, it was the soul most powerful experiential demonstration of the existence of God I had ever, I could have ever imagined. Because essentially for 30 days I was staring at a gold box in the tabernacle for four hours a day, doing nothing else but thinking about some guy's life 2,000 years ago, and it was nothing short of life-changing. Absolutely phenomenal. Well, anyway, that's, that was, so that's what these, these rules of discernment are meant to be that's where they're meant to be learned. They're meant to be learned in the context of a lot of silence, a lot of peace, and a lot of prayer. And that's where you kind of can begin to see where the good spirit comes in, where the bad spirit comes in. And we'll get into a little bit more. I can tell you a few more stories drawing from that 30-day as the mission continues. So let's take a look, shall we? The 14 Rules of Discernment. Let's see what your paper has. The 14 Rules of Discernment by St. Ignatius Loyola. Now, this, these three lines up here at the top are how he, in, how he leads in with the spiritual exercise. The spirit, so, St. Ignatius Loyola, military man, so he kind of wrote the, the, the spiritual exercises as a military handbook. It's not, it's not a, a long treatise. It's very, very straightforward. The different movements which are caused in the soul for perceiving and knowing in some manner the good to receive them, the bad to reject them. So it's all about discerning what's good, what's bad, to receiving the good and rejecting the bad, like, like we mentioned earlier. And in, in the exercises, you don't have this on your paper, but on the exercises that he has under that and they are more proper for the first week. So this is one of those, this, these, these rules of discernment is something that you actually receive and something you read basically whenever you're, whenever you're thinking about heaven and hell and how you deserve hell, but you're, God's giving you heaven because he loves you. So it's a very, very interesting, it's kind of nice because, you know, I remember my own experience, like, you know, thinking about hell, I was like, no! And then like, you know, my, my spirit director was like, Evil spirit, remember? And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right, you're right. So like, you know, whenever I like freak out, he would, he would often remind me of these things. So here we go. Rule number one. The first rule. In persons who go from mortal sin to mortal sin, the enemy is commonly used to propose to them apparent pleasures, making them imagine sensual delights and pleasures in order to hold them more and make them grow in their vices and in their sins. In these persons, the good spirit uses the opposite method, pricking them and biting their consciences 
through the process of reason. Through the process of reason. Let's, let's, let's break this down. Let's unpack this a little bit. In the persons who go from mortal sin to mortal sin, essentially what St. Ignatius is saying is that the, this pertains to all of those persons who are moving away from God. So this rule essentially is rooted in directionality. Those going away from the Lord. Now, you might be asking, what exactly does this mean, going from mortal sin to mortal sin? Because if you think about my life, I mean, I, mean, I kind of go from mortal sin to mortal sin. I, kinda, I do wrong things. I do this. I do that. Like, you know, you can think, like, there's ways where you can rationalize and put yourself in these places. What we're talking about is not exactly, it's not exactly somebody who, goes to mortal, who does mortal sin and then runs to confession right off. We're talking about somebody who persists in mortal sin and continues in their actions and just without any repentance. We're talking about, about just somebody who, who, who has chosen a very vicious life. Sadly, this is a very, very common problem in today's day and age. And I mean, we see this. I mean, how many of our friends don't go to Mass on Sundays and don't really care? It just doesn't really make, doesn't really make a difference. That's persisting in mortal sin. How many people do we know that are living together? Don't really care. Persisting in mortal sin. How do we know? How many people do we know who've left the Catholic Church and don't really care? Probably persisting in mortal sin. So these things pertain more toward that dimension of persons. Now we can we can at times just say, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm just going to go this direction. And if that's the case, then this is how the spirits will work on you. A good example of kind of explaining and, and showing how the evil spirits and how the good spirits work in mortal sin is the poem called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. The Hound of Heaven is an amazing, amazing poem. And, it, and I'll read it to you next time, next time we come in. But it's all about how this, this man is running from the Lord running from what he calls the hound of heaven. Francis Thompson had a fascinating life. He, he was a drug addict who eventually was taken in by a prostitute, but eventually the, he was rehabilitated and converted to Catholicism. And, and he, eventually, he eventually probably died in a state of grace, but the, it was a very, very long, arduous journey, and he describes it as being chased, being chased, being chased by this, this hound that would not leave him alone. And the question is, well, why would you call God a hound? Well, in terms of somebody going from mortal sin to mortal sin, that's how he's going to appear. That's how he's going to look. So let's take a look at this. The evil spirit works on those who are running away from the Lord. And so if you are that person running away from the Lord, the devil ain't going to stop you. He's going to pat you on the head and say, you're doing a great job, buddy. You keep it up. Very well done. All right? You are accomplishing my mission. Now, does that mean that, that this person is going to experience joy, the joys of heaven and delights and all this other stuff? Probably not. Sin does have consequences and sin will make you feel terrible. But the devil is not going to lead and is not going to be the cause of your terror necessarily. In a, in a certain sense, he is. But he's going to more be your cheerleader. Well done, man. Go, go do this. Go do that. Go do that. Playing on all these sensual pleasures in all of our imaginations. He's going to constantly be introducing these, these ideas to us and constantly lure us in. I'll give you an example. Psalm 31. Sin speaks to the sinner. Sin speaks to the sinner in the depths of his heart. It speaks to him. And it, that's, that's, he's writing, David is writing about somebody who is, who is who's in rule one. Going from mortal sin to mortal sin. Sin is just speaking to him. So what does the good spirit do? The good spirit is doing the opposite method. The good spirit of the Lord is pricking them and biting them and doing everything he possibly can to stop them or us through the process of reason. Through the process of reason. And so what, what essentially we're looking at, an image that I like to, to picture, is imagine, imagine hell is a great chasm. 
and you have somebody who's going from mortal sin and mortal sin is running to that great chasm. All right. What's the devil going to do? He's going to cheer him on. Yeah, go for it, buddy. Woo! You know, he's going to like glorify him and, and just make a, make a whole big scene out of it. And they're going to feel real pumped up and they're going to, they're going to feel all machismo about it. But the Lord is going to say, what are you doing, dude? You're better than this. This is dumb. This isn't going to help you. And it's sometimes going to be vicious. Remember, Jesus did whip people, not verbally, physically. He braided up a leather whip and beat people in the temple. Not because he liked to torture people, but because these people were running to the chasm and he was trying to knock some sense into them. Anyway, I'll stop there. I don't want to go through the, through the theology of corporal punishment here. That's another homily. <laughs> Probably one I shouldn't preach. <laughs> it might get me into some trouble. But the point being is that Jesus, Jesus will often and sometimes be, if you will, a biting spirit. But this isn't to everybody. It depends upon what direction you're going. What direction you're going is completely, completely dictates how the evil spirit will work and how the good spirit will work, one or the other. And so basically what I'm getting at is that if you're going to discern spirits accurately, which spirit is, is at work on which person, we must identify the fundamental direction of a person's life. This applies to spiritual directors. I don't know that any, I don't think, I don't see any spiritual directors in the crowd, but if you're a spiritual director, you need to figure out what direction the person is going before you can really analyze how the spirit is working. But for you, the question I would propose is what are you, what direction are you going? Are you comfortable going mortal sin to mortal sin, unrepentant of your ways? And if so, rule one applies to you. If you're trying to avoid mortal sin, and that's all, if you're doing everything you can, coming to confession, staying in a state of grace, doing what you're called to do, doing what God is asking, then rule one does not apply to you. Rule two applies to you. And that's where we will look at next. The second rule. In the person's who are going intensely, who are going on intensely cleansing their sins and rising from good to better in the service of God our Lord, it is the method contrary to that in the first rule. For then it is the way of the evil spirit to bite, sadden, and put obstacles, disquieting with false reasons, that one may not go on. And it is proper to the good to give courage and strength, consolation, tears, inspirations, and quiet, easing and putting away all obstacles, that one may go on in well-doing. Proper for the good to give courage and strength Consolations and tears, inspirations and quiet, easing and putting away all obstacles, that one may go on in well-doing. Notice what we have here. We have the complete reversal of the two spirits, a method contrary to that in the first rule. These are those who are going, doing everything they can to cleanse their sins, going to confession, going to adoration, praying rosaries, really, really doing everything we can to grow in virtue, grow in love, especially of our Lord and Maker. And what is that doing going from good to better? And how will the spirits work? The evil spirit will bite, sadden, put obstacles, and disquiet with false reasons, and that the other may not exist, so that one might not go on. So let's take a look at this. Let's like kind of let's kind of analyze. Just so you know, I would say this applies to most, if not all of you, trying, just trying, doing everything you can. And so here's kind of though what this looks like. So we have the enemy. 
it'll be bites. We're kind of probably familiar with that feeling, just kind of like the, the, that, that, that sharp feeling that we experience. Saddens. Now, what does that mean? Let's make a distinction here. This is not a healthy sadness. There are such things as healthy sadnesses. I mean, we have Our Lady of Sorrows. Sadness is a part of the Christian life. There is nothing necessarily wrong with sorrow. Sorrow namely applying especially to those who are outside of us. Sadness almost always applies to ourselves. Self-pity, self-confusion, just being kind of down on ourselves. Sadness is usually very inward, whereas sorrow is very outward. Whenever we see Our Lady of Sorrows, she's not looking at herself crying. She's looking at all of us in tears, begging for us to repent of our ways and turn to the Lord. It is, it is a sorrow that is outward, whereas this, this enemy is just trying to draw us inward. Putting obstacles and disquieting with false reasons. False reasons. This is very, very important. The way you know, the distinction between the second, the, the way that the good spirit works and the way the evil spirit works in the first and second rule is the good spirit operates on reason. It's really not a good idea for me to steal this car. It's really not a good idea to, for me to live in mortal sin. It's really not a good idea for me to avoid confession. Like, that's a reasonable objective in reality. That's a reasonable thing to not do. It's reasonable. But the second rule, we have the evil spirit trying to convince us with false reasons. And what he's basically trying to get us to do is just doing what we call rationalize. Oh, you deserve this car. You, you owe it to yourself. You worked hard all day. You don't need to go to Sunday Mass. It's, it's been, you've been busy. You're tired. You know, you, you've been serving the Lord all week. You need to take some time for yourself. Son of the Lord, this is a day of rest after all, right? False reasons. That logic does not apply if you actually exfoliate that and talk to reasonable people. The reason why I bring up this and the reason why I want to hone in on this is discernment of spirits under no... Ooh, I'm running out of time. Discernment of spirits under no circumstances should be... should go against reason. If it's not reasonable, you ain't discerning right. All right? If it is reasonable, then you're on the right track. See the difference? I mean, if, if something is not reasonable and you're going to go through with it, you're not following the good spirit. Reason has a huge, has, really has every part to play in this. There is no, it's no, it's, there's no divorce between faith and reason here. It's just not a, a little a subcategory of faith that excludes us from reason. No, no, no. The good spirit and the evil spirit is going to work through reason. Give me just five minutes. I'm almost done with this rule and then I promise we'll send you on your way. The final, the, the other thing is the good. The good, the good spirit is going to give us courage, strength, consolations, tears, inspirations, quiet, easing, putting away. Basically, the good spirit is going to is going to give us the tranquility, the peace that we're looking for. Now, what often comes up a lot is the story of Mother Teresa. Was Mother Teresa Mother Teresa, as we we say, was sat in prayer for forty years, but. I would argue that Mother Teresa's experience in prayer was what you might call a purifying darkness. Whenever we talk about, whenever we talk about God's moving the soul and move God, God consoling the soul, it doesn't necessarily mean good and happy feelings. It means something a little bit deeper. It means giving them courage. It means giving them strength. It means giving them tears. And I can only imagine that's what Mother Teresa was experiencing. If you look at the life of Mother Teresa, you cannot help but see a woman of incredible courage. You cannot help but see a woman who was not afraid to go to, the, to Congress and denounce every single evil that went against the Catholic faith without playing partisan politics. You saw a woman who had the courage to stand up for her faith and never, ever let it down. And so even though you might say, oh, well, Mother Teresa was desolate, I wouldn't say she was desolate. And we'll get more into that as we move on. Obstacles can tend to be overthinking our weaknesses. False reasons can be second-guessing. But the good spirit is always encouraging. If we're going to heaven, he's going to be our cheerleader. He's going to be our help. 
He's not going to beat us down. He's not going to, he's not going to make us second-guess things. He's not going to throw obstacles into us. He's not going to discourage us from our upcoming challenges. So that's the first rule. That's the second rule. These rules have everything to do with directionality, and they're essential for us to understand the rest of the rules. Also, the third rule to the 14th rule only applies to people in the second rule. And we'll get to, we'll get to, to that next, next time. And so we're going we're gonna to leave you at that. We're gonna, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to continue to march through these rules. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the difference between consolation, desolation, how to treat desolation, how to be prepared for, for things in consolation, and then eventually move on to how do we utilize this in our day-to-day life. Let's pray. Please stand. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.